Hello and welcome to Legal Thinking with uh, myself, Ed Wotton, and my co-host, Liam Pape. Hello. Um, this week, Liam, um, we're talking about uh, bereavement. Um, mm. Obviously, it's something that happens to everyone, um, but something that doesn't happen to everyone is that they're bereaved uh, as a result of negligence or an injury or something that basically uh, someone could be held I suppose at fault is the word I would use um, or the phrase I would use um, and in those cases sometimes um, our, our teams uh, our negligence teams um, basically help those people uh, through the legal process of you know seeking uh, financial compensation when that kind of thing has happened but obviously there's a whole lot of different things and uh, that can come up um, feelings obviously in in a stressful time as an emotional time um, during bereavement that um, we wanted to kind of talk about um, so we got uh, Ali Cloak uh, who's a specialist in inquests uh, and fatal claims and she spoke to um, Nikki de Taranto um, who's a consultant psych- psychiatrist um, and uh, yeah, um, they had a really in-depth conversation um, about uh, this very tricky topic. Indeed. We, so this podcast is, of course, called Legal Thinking. Um, but in this conversation, I think some of the most interesting elements that were spoken about were actually the emotional um, part mm. of making a claim and kind of the thought process that claimants go through before making it and deciding whether they want to. What Nikki does a really good job of here um, is kind of going into the ins and outs of the way people feel before they make a claim and during the claim. And Ali does a fantastic job of explaining the claim process, but also um, kind of the emotional intelligence which is needed by lawyers to conduct that as well. So yeah, let's um, roll the tape, as it were. Yeah, I guess, I'm um, sorry, just to <clears throat> introduce you, Nikki, um, as a psychiatrist, so, yeah, what are the issues that kind of come up in, in the course of the claim that... You know, people need to work through. Um, I think um, you know, normal grief and beyond that kind of thing. Well, just on, on the issue first of um, sort of the the effects on the individual of bringing a claim, whether it's in a, a you know a situation of, of bereavement or whether it's something else, um, you know, some other um, traumatic or um, unpleasant event in your life, it's definitely very double edged in that um, the. Uh, the, ex- the experience of bringing the claim can be very distressing for an individual. Um, they have to obviously relive um, uh, traumatic experiences. Um, and um, uh, the, the big factor of, um, you know, being told often by the experts who are um, giving reports in the case that, oh, this could have been prevented, whatever it was that happened. Um, uh, you know, in, in all personal injury cases, that that's that's going to be a factor because obviously if you're taking your case forward, you're being told something could have been done differently. And that can be very distressing and can actually trigger, um, you know, mental health issues in the person. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's a big factor and it's something which sometimes actually quite perturbs me that I'm often when I'm interviewing a, or examining a person in the context of a personal injury claim, I'm actually re-traumatizing them. And, um, you know, that, that can be quite a uh, you know, an ethical consideration as to how much you push them in terms of um, obviously you have to ask them about what happened and, and t- 
take them through the the traumatic event, whatever it was. And and that, that um, is something, you know, you have to sort of, I guess, use clinical judgment as to how far you push them in that um, in order to try not to um, make things worse for them. Um, but uh, obviously, it's important for them to be able to progress their claim as well. So, that, that, is, that is a bit of an ethical factor in such cases. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in your experience, though, do you find that um, the process of guessing the answers, even if it does demonstrate that, um, you know, things could have been done differently and, you know, the death was avoidable, do you think that it, it perhaps helps with, um, you know, prolonged grief um, to find out who was responsible and hold them to account? You know, I, I, I think it's very individual and, and it, it's, it's, it differs from case to case because you, you also, of course, I'm usually meeting people once or twice in the course of their claim and I don't get to see what happens to them later after the claim is finished and they get on with their lives and hopefully sometimes with some therapy. Um, but um, I think it's quite individual because almost in, invariably people tell me I'm not doing this for the compensation. I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing it because I want justice. I'm doing it because I want this never to happen to somebody else. I'm doing it because the organization that let me down needs to change. Um, and I think people, if they are successful in litigation, probably do find then that they, they can, a lot of people find that they can move on um, if they get, you know, the, the answer um, and so on. And of course, you know, although people say they're not not in it for the money. Of course, money can help with things like um, getting therapy, which is incredibly difficult to do on the NHS, but you know, um, you, you can then pay for decent quality therapy. So, um, I think it is individual though, and I have seen people in personal injury claims who've been absolutely, um, you know, their mental health has deteriorated terribly during the course of, of making the claim. So, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Um, you, you want people to make claims where something's gone wrong. You want, um, you know, organizations to be held to account for mistakes, but, you know, there, there is a cost to the individual um, for, for doing that. So, uh, it's, 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 it's very individual though. I mean, some people find it therapeutic. To, to bring the claim and to, to find the answers. And, and of That's course... That's what I was going to ask yeah. about, Nikki. Um, I, um, particularly with the inquest process, I find that families are really sort of driven or motivated by the feeling that they're doing something useful, that they're... Um, yeah, potentially changing processes, they know, and they'll often speak to doing it in so-and-so's memory or sort of in their honour or, um, and that seems to be a real motivating factor. And I, I don't know whether that's, you know, partly distraction, partly, you know, it may well actually be unhelpful from your point of view, but it, it's definitely a theme of the families that I work with. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, practically every personal injury case I do, um, the people are saying, I want this not to happen to somebody else. And they have... Uh, at least part of their um, motivation is exactly that, that they are doing it for a, for a, a greater cause, not, not just for themselves and their family. And I think that does, for a lot of people, that does kind of offset the distress and, and actual, you know, mental um, disorder that sometimes causes them. Um, but not, not always. And, you know, I have seen people where it's actually been very damaging and I have seen people where it's been extremely therapeutic. I mean, I think on the whole, um, people probably um, – do find it um, 
helpful to their mental health in the end, but it's a difficult process to go through. Um, but uh, I mean, it's an important thing for society. It's not just about the individuals. It's about holding um, organizations to account and people do find that helpful. Yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, funding the cost of therapy, which is obviously really important if um, someone needs that help. But it also springs to my mind, you know, the sort of wider anxieties about financial concerns. So where a household has lost, um, you know, someone that was contributing financially, um, the, you know, broader anxiety about how they're going to sort of cope and, um, you know, get on with their lives without that um, income, you know, must be a massive additional stressor. Um, and so although it, it can take a while before a claim results in a settlement, but that in itself must bring a, um, alleviate a massive burden. Yes, I mean, of course, when people have actually, you know, lost, um, uh, you know, lost out financially through through a personal injury, obviously, sort of having having the means to get on with your life is going to help their mental health in the longer term. But obviously, as I said, going through the claim can be very stressful for people, and um, you know, in a case where there's been a, a particularly uh, traumatic event. Um, you're going to reawaken, um, you know, traumatic memories and so on. And, and you know, you can, you know, I often tell the person they may need some extra support while they're going through the litigation process. And um, then they may feel some relief at the end of it. Um, but, yeah, of course, you don't want to discourage people because um, it's it's very important that they, they do get what hopefully will be helpful to them at the end in, in terms of obviously compensation, but also therapy, which is incredibly difficult to get these days on the NHS. And I was going to ask what, what we can perhaps do to mitigate some of that harm along the way. It's important that people realise that you know, um, you know, you and, and me as, as, as the psychiatrist and, and everybody else involved, that you know that it's it's stressful and, and difficult for them and that it's, it's okay if they feel that it's... Um, you know, it's very overwhelming and very difficult and that that's normal. Um, you know, sometimes people feel guilty that they are finding it overwhelming. They're finding it very difficult to to, to go forward with the litigation. You know, and you see people who, you know, they, they take the solicitor's letters and they tell me about, you know, they, they can't open the solicitor's letter. They won't open the email um, for a while and they'll, they'll find it very difficult. And it's important to normalize that and explain to people that what they're going through is, is completely normal. And I find if, um, you know, if I'm examining somebody and I find they actually are suffering from an actual mental disorder, be it a prolonged grief reaction, be it post-traumatic stress disorder, be it other kinds of, you know, mental health issues, that you actually point that out to them and that that is normal, that is, um, you know, that they are actually suffering from something that is identifiable and that um, they might want to seek, if they're not already seeking help, that they might want to seek help for that. Um, and um, to, to sort of yeah to normalise it to, to make them realise that this is a normal this is a normal reaction if you've been traumatised or if you've lost something or if something bad has happened to you and you are now suffering from mental health issues as a result or partly as a result of that 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 is a perfectly normal thing and that there there are names for these conditions um, we you know we have treatments for these conditions and um, that. Also, you know, that, that if they were to seek treatment, um, even during the course of the litigation, that is not going to damage their claim at all um, because people sometimes worry that, that, you know, they should wait until the claim's finished before they seek treatment. And, and you know, it, it's very important that people are supported while they're doing 
while they are going through the process, especially as it often takes a long time. And um, people's mental health does suffer. So definitely to normalize it, to explain to them that this is this is something, you know, I'll often say this is, you know, what, what you're going through is something I see uh, a lot in people who are bringing claims about traumatic events. And, you know, there's a name for this. It's post-traumatic stress disorder or it is a bereavement reaction or whatever I, you know, consider it to be. And the treatment will be and, and explain to them what, what, what treatment is available. And even if they can't get the treatment immediately, for example, if they're on an NHS waiting list and, you know, they're not going to get it within the next couple of months and you know they aren't. Um, and there's not going to be an interim payment for a while or whatever. So they're not going to get it to, to explain that at some point in the future, treatment is going to alleviate your, your distress to a degree. So that's very important to give people hope as well. Um, I was just thinking in, in terms of some of the practical steps that I always uh, sort of try to bear in mind, because it, I think, as Nikki said, it's so um, individual specific. And um, there'll be some clients who call me up as soon as I've got in touch with them and they want to discuss it for um you know, for a while and go through every sort of question, every detail. And then I have um, at the opposite end of the spectrum clients who I know they won't want to open my email for a long time. And I'll sort of, um, I'll, I'll give them a heads up in the email as to sort of whether they need to read it soon or not. So they can, you know, decide when they feel most comfortable to try and, you know, read whatever it is. Or perhaps if it's disclosure in the inquest, it can sometimes be a really large amount of documents with really difficult content in it. And so I think, yeah, I think tailoring it to the specific person is um, something I definitely try to do just to bear in mind their preferences on how they try to process it, um, particularly when you're sending out yeah, documents that you think are going to be difficult for them to, um, to grapple with. Yeah, so it's definitely something you, you guys take into account. Yeah, and I think some people want to be really heavily involved and want to sort of understand all the detail intricately and then other people really want to take a bit of a back seat and they've you know they sort of see it that they've brought you in so they don't have to deal with so much of the the burden um so yeah there's a huge disparity in what people sort of seek from the process and how involved they feel they need to be to achieve their objectives and um, as um, legal professionals um what would you suggest to people who may be um go through this process to try and understand that they've got the right solicitor that's actually going to take these kind of things into account um what do you think would be the red flags or something like that that's that, you know maybe not got the right person or that you know um, trying to reword it the other way more think, positively uh, would be the, the yeah positive i think sign. generally there's um yeah a really good standard um you know of legal advice in this country so i think you know that's a good starting point but i i think for yeah for any you know client or potential client i think it's just a really individual decision um and so i think they'll know pretty quickly whether they've you know built up a good rapport with who they're speaking with um and yeah i think that early discussions about what their expectations are um because it, it isn't the same for every every family um and i think that that would certainly be a mistake to sort of assume that you know how how a family or a client want want things run or exactly what they're seeking to obtain because it is it's slightly different for everyone um so i think i would be recommending that um yeah a potential claimant has that initial discussion is reassured that um the solicitor understands what's what they want um, and has sort of been able to explain what's realistic for them to um, to seek from the process as well, um, because um, 
yeah, managing expectations, I think, can be quite important at the outset and not over-promising, um, which can perhaps be um, uh, a temptation for, for some lawyers uh, in order to secure the client, um, perhaps over-promising what they can achieve. I was hoping to ask Nikki a, a question, actually, um, really about uh, the, the link between the suspicion or perhaps uh, confirmation of substandard care um, and how that uh, fits in with, with their um, response, really, their grief reaction or a mental disorder that might follow. Is there a link between the perception of wrongdoing and the nature and extent of their reaction? Well, I'm, I'm not speaking from the point of view of being aware of any research or um, any literature on that topic, but I can speak from my own personal experience um, in that, um, I mean, I, I see lots of people with both um, grief disorders, prolonged grief disorder, which is a, a normal, abnormal reaction to, um, to bereavement, and or post-traumatic stress disorder, which can overlap with each other. Um, and from my experience... Um, I think that definitely the um, and what what people tell me when I interview them, the as you say the suspicion or sometimes the absolute knowledge that um, there was a, a mistake that there was substandard care or that something went wrong um, can definitely um, worsen the, um, the the distress and um, increase um, symptoms of the mental disorder and um, you know as we were saying earlier sometimes. Um, uh, putting putting things right, as in this being identified in the inquest, um, being acknowledged by the uh, defendant, um, being acknowledged in um, in the settlement, that can actually be um, very therapeutic for the person. Um, usually, I come into cases when the inquest has already happened, uh, in most cases, and um, people will point to the findings at the inquest as being. Um, distressing, you know, if it's been found, if the, if the coroner, for example, thinks and points out to, to um, you know, mistakes. Um, but they, I mean, people usually know, they, they, they already know that there's been, that something's gone wrong. You know, they don't just suspect it, they know. And um, to have it actually acknowledged by the coroner and then to, to potentially have it acknowledged in, in litigation, I, from my experience, is, is helpful to people. As I say, I don't get to see people in the long term, so I will see them during the course of the litigation. I don't then usually find out what happened to them, you know, years down the line. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not speaking from knowing what happened to people afterwards. But in the course of the litigation, if we've got an inquest which finds, um, you know, points to wrong. Uh, wrong care. And then if we've got, for example, um, an acknowledgement of liability from the defendant or, you know, even an apology sometimes from defendants um, during the course of the litigation, so when I'm still involved, um, my experience is that people will tell me that that was incredibly helpful to them. Um, it makes them sad, obviously, and people, you know, will, will be, but an acknowledgement that that should not have happened uh, is going to help her mental health, in my experience. Yes, absolutely. And that ties in with the duty of candor to some extent as well. Um, in that, yeah, I often f uh, hear from families that the primary motivation for them getting in touch with a lawyer is that they feel like they haven't been spoken to honestly or candidly about what happened and where they have perhaps been told by a member of staff or um, have, you know, sort of reached their own conclusion that something's gone wrong, but they feel as if it's being... Um, 
yeah, obscured by the people, you know, at the hospital or the treatment provider. Um, and I think, you know, they often say, look, I, I wouldn't have wanted to get lawyers involved, but they haven't been honest. Um, and I think, yeah, people can be surprisingly understanding when, when they're just given a, a sort of straight explanation about what happened. So I think we have a really high level of fondness for the NHS um, in England and Wales. And um, yeah, people definitely experience a sense of guilt actually pursuing a claim. And they, they often ask sort of whether they should be doing it. And and it's something that people really grapple with. Um, uh, and many of them will say, look, if we had just received a, a clear answer at the outset, we definitely wouldn't have done this. But this has, you know, turned out to be the only way that we felt we could investigate it. Um, I'm conscious we're obviously at the, well, we, we sort of hope the tail end of the most intense period of the COVID pandemic, um, but I'm aware that's had a, an impact in many ways on on people who um, who are grieving. Um, and I was just interested in Nikki's thoughts really on sort of the realities of that and how that's impacted um yeah, impacted people, I suppose, both in terms of them specifically and practical things like not being able to see other loved ones or not being able to do their hobbies as normal, but also in terms of access to um, perhaps psychiatric assessment and therapies. Yeah, I've just started seeing, I'd say, just starting to come through now for, for me, um, cases which are in way or another pandemic related, either because of care that couldn't be given because of, you know, the, the stress on the NHS or um, cases directly related to COVID itself. Um, so th there, there is an impact, and and um, one of one of the, one of its some of the impact is in terms of litigation. I think is probably related to what you were saying earlier about the way that people feel very protective towards the NHS and therefore feel guilty about um, litigating against uh, you know hospitals and NHS bodies. Um, and probably more so in the pandemic, people, you know, they felt they had to, they were told, protect the NHS. And now, you know, obviously people do feel guilt at taking action against NHS um, NHS organisations. So I think that's something which people uh, have to work through in their claims. Um, in terms of access to therapy, um, it's a dire situation. It really is. I mean... Um, it's 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 it was bad before the pandemic. Um, you know, access to therapy and like decent quality psychotherapy on the NHS, um, and it's 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 just much worse now. Um, it's it's something which you know I'm hearing from people. I've been on the waiting list since you know March 2020 for um, you know some CBT, and they haven't got back to me. the The whole mental health system is struggling massively in the NHS. Um, it's you know it's been underfunded for years and that's obviously a political point but um the the you know the pandemic has made things worse and um people are not getting therapies in time when they need it um you know whether it's for for bereavement or whether it's for PTSD or whether it's for anything else really and when they do get therapy um it's often uh not necessarily um enough um so you have people getting um, going to their GP, getting some sessions of counselling from a well-meaning counsellor, but you're not getting proper high-quality CBT, which is what you need with, you know, people who are. I mean, we're not talking about people who are just suffering from 
a sort of normal, you know, grief and need a bit of counselling and talking through. Um, with, with, with the kind of cases we're talking about here, that you know, the kind of people who are going to end up in litigation, you're talking about people who actually have a, a severe mental disorder. They're suffering from a, you know, a disorder which is which is diagnosed and identifiable and which is susceptible to treatment. And yeah, it's it's it is important. Uh, obviously, it's important with litigation because you know you you you're looking for a diagnosis, but it's also important in um, in treatment to understand that obviously. You know, grief and bereavement is a normal part of life. Uh, you know, it's everybody. Everybody experiences it. Um, it's uh, you know, if people have heard of sort of the normal, supposedly normal stages of bereavement. You know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. You know, it's something which um, people know about. Um, and you might need counselling. I mean, traditionally, obviously, you turn to your family at times of bereavement, but sometimes people find it helpful to have some counselling. But that's a very different thing from um, the development of an actual mental disorder um, as a result of a death. And um, it, it's about one in 10 people who will develop um, a reaction, a mental disorder as a result of bereavement. And... Um, there's there's a number of different disorders which you can which you can develop. Um, the, the specific one to bereavement is called prolonged grief disorder, and that is where basically you've got um, you, you're grieving and you you've lost somebody. You are you know you 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 have all the reactions that you get when you're bereaved. But this this is it goes on for longer than is than is normal um, for your society or your family or your culture. And it results in significant impairment. So it's not just that you 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 know you're sad, you're bereaved, you you you're suffering from grief. Your your life is actually being impaired. And um, usually you would say it goes on for more than six months. Or if it's if it's if you are significantly impaired by grief, you know you can't function, you can't work, you're not looking after your children, whatever it is your your role in life is, for more than six months. Um, then you're looking at a, a diagnosis of what's called prolonged grief disorder. It's a it's a kind of a new diagnosis in well, it's been talked about for ages, but the the new ICD-11, which is the you know the, the the classification of diseases, the World Health Organization classification of diseases, it's it's for the first time it's been included in that. And the ICD-11 came into force in on the first of January this year, and prolonged grief disorder is in it. Um, after many years of, of you know people lobbying for it to be there as a specific disorder, because previously grief disorder kind of fell under um, sort of general stress-related disorders, but it didn't have a specific um, classification in the in the in the ICD-10. Now we've got prolonged grief disorder in the ICD-11, so that is one diagnosis. But when you lose somebody in traumatic circumstances, like an accident or a, a witnessed suicide or something like that, you 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 may also. Um, get post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, which obviously, as lawyers, you're very um, familiar with with that diagnosis. And they can they can overlap, they can coexist. Um, or you can have one and not the other. So um, it's you could get either of those, and you can also, of course, get a depressive disorder as a result of a bereavement. So you could have all three of them, or you could have one or two of them. And um, what's important about making the the distinction or, or making the different diagnoses is that the treatment may be slightly different in, in an ideal world. Obviously, you know, if, you, if you're looking for general sort of NHS treatment, you may just get the same standard CBT. But in an ideal world, you'd have specific targeted treatment. You'd have grief-related therapy or you'd have 
trauma-related therapy, or you'd obviously, if you had both of those, you'd address both of those issues uh, separately because they're not the same thing. Um, so the, it's important to make a diagnosis if you're going to um, identify what the what the correct uh, treatment is for for the disorder. And as I said earlier, it's also important to explain to people if you have made a diagnosis that you are suffering from a mental disorder. You're not just failing to get over it or failing to, you know, pull yourself up by your bootlaces or whatever people may tell you. You are actually suffering from a mental disorder, which is caused by whatever, you know, whatever the features are that cause the disorder. And there is specific treatment available for this disorder. And, you know, People do find that very helpful to hear um, that you're not you're not just you know you're not you're not just a, a weak person or a person hasn't who hasn't managed or a person who's not coping. You're a person with this disorder. This is what it's called. This is what the treatment is, and this is what the prognosis is. And I, I think people do find that helpful. And from the client's perspective, and from our perspective, um, is there anything in particular you'd recommend that we? Um, you know, specifically tell them ahead of the meeting? Because I'm sure lots of people are, are apprehensive about it, and I'm sure... Everybody's um, apprehensive, yes. <laughs> um, I think, um, well, it's... it's. Um, I mean, I, I actually, you you usually prepare your clients pretty well, but I work for some solicitors who um, the clients, for example, are surprised that they're going to have to talk about anything other than the... Um, you know the 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 index event, so um, and that can be very difficult. I, I don't think it's ever happened with your clients, but I, I sometimes see people and they think, okay, you know, they're going to talk to me about, you know, well, in this case, we talk about a death of somebody, so they're going to talk to me about the death of their loved one, and then of course I start asking them about their childhood and their relationship with their mother, and they are absolutely shocked and stunned and unhappy and and uh, distressed by that. So I think it's important to explain that when when you're going to see a psychiatrist, of course you're going to talk about this terrible thing that's happened to you, but the psychiatrist is going to ask you about everything in your life. They're going to talk to you about your childhood. They're going to talk to you about your marriage. They're going to talk to you about your, you know, your 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 physical health. They're going to talk to you about your children, um, because. It's it's very difficult once once somebody's now been sort of upset by the fact that I'm asking them questions they didn't expect. It's then very difficult to get a proper mental state examination because now they're upset about something else, you know, not the thing that we're talking about. They're upset about the fact that I'm prying into their life. So I, I'd say that's one of the most important things is to say this is a psychiatric examination. It's not just um, you know an identification of what the issues are. That's that's where you do your witness statement. You explain what happened. You talk about this terrible thing that happened. But a psychiatrist is going to ask you about absolutely everything in your life, um, you know, including stuff that you may think is irrelevant. Because I, I mean, it does happen quite a lot that I see people and they say, "No, I'm, that's not relevant." And of course, I don't come back and say, "Well, it is actually," but you know, I'm not going to be, um, you know, mean and horrible to them and say, "Well, actually, it is relevant," and it's for me to say what's relevant. Um, but People then have their backs up, and they are not—they're um, not going to share things in in a way which is, you know, most helpful to the examination. So I'd yeah, say that's, 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 that's really point. important, yeah. And to, just to explain to people that they—they, it's—it's—it's—it's it's a whole—it's a thing. A psychiatric examination is a thing. You're not just chatting to somebody about something. You're not getting a little bit of counselling. You're not, you know, speaking to me to just explain what you told your lawyer, you know, a couple of weeks ago in more detail. It's 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 a whole it's a formalized process in which you 
answer questions about everything in your life, basically. And that, that would be probably the most helpful thing you can do. And then people know and they don't, they're not surprised and shocked when I ask them questions which they feel to be irrelevant. And I imagine so. it's quite hard to get back on track if, if they felt a bit ambushed at the outset. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I mean, I, I actually now what I do and, and have for a couple of years now, I do say to people at the beginning, we are going to talk about your life. We are going to talk about your childhood and we are going to talk about your, you know, your your three marriages or whatever it is. And um, I, I say that at the outset, but I mean, it's still, if they haven't been prepared for that, you can see that they're kind of taken aback. But it's it's obviously worse if you just jump in and, you know, you're like, hello, how are you? Okay, uh, where were you born? You know, what was your mother like? And people can get very, very defensive. And then sometimes you can't actually, you know, you know, I mean, some people refuse to talk, of course, and that's fine. That's, And sometimes people say, I'm not going to answer that question. And my answer is, that's fine. You don't have to answer any question. It's not no mandatory. It's just the questions you do answer help me to write my report and, and, and to help your lawyer in the case. But um, it's uh, that, that I think would be one of the most important things um, in terms of preparing the client and just making sure, I'd say making sure that they – they, they, they know what they, what's going to happen, that it's going to take about two hours. It's not going to be a 10-minute conversation. It's going to take two or three hours. So they need to be ready for that. And that they might afterwards um, not feel very good. And they, you know, they, they might feel that they need to be with somebody, that they need to phone somebody, that they need to talk to someone. Um, you know, so maybe you know, alert someone in their life that they, they might want to talk to them afterwards, I'd say. Um, uh, that that would probably be, uh, you know, a good piece of advice, um, and that and that it's not it's not going to be a pleasant experience. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, some people actually do find it. Some I've I've had people say to me, you know, oh, this is the first time I've ever spoken about this awful thing that happened, and it's been really helpful. It's been therapeutic. It's been good to speak. Um, thank you so much for listening. I get that. I also get people, obviously, who are distressed beyond belief and absolutely find it the most awful process, and they they you know they. They really are so upset and, and um, distressed at having to talk about the things in their life, you know, that they don't want to. Um, so you you get you get both ends of it, actually. There's some great insights from from Nikki mm-hmm. um, and Ali as well um, about how families um, go through this incredibly difficult process. It's a really important process to ensure that you know lessons are are learned by medical institutions or whoever else might be responsible for a death in these kind of circumstances. Thank you very much for listening to Legal Thinking. Um, If you would like to hear more discussions like this, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more information about us, you can go to roidswithyking.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.